We are in a series called The Tender Commandments. Some of you didn't know that the Ten Commandments were tender, that you didn't know that they were from the heart of a loving father to you, his child. You thought they were God taking all your fun away, okay? You thought they were God putting a ball and chain on you, and you could hear the padlocks rattling because he said, thou shalt and thou shalt not. But as I learned about the Ten Commandments, the first time I ever did a serious study of them, I see them now as from the heart of a loving father to his children that's teaching his children, is teaching his people how to be a people. And remember now, he gave these commandments to people who had been slaves for 400 years. They didn't know how to be a free people. They didn't know how to be a people. They were slaves, and they were told what time to get up and what time to go to bed and what time to eat and everything. And now he had to teach them how to be a people. And in some ways, he does it for us. As we come into the Christian life, he has to teach us how to be his people. And the Ten Commandments serves that purpose for us today. Now, remember, I told you several times in preaching that context is important. And so where you have a verse, you have a paragraph. And where you have a paragraph, you have a chapter. And where you have a chapter, you have a book. And where you have a book, you have a testament. And where you have two testaments, you have a Bible. And to look at the context that the Ten Commandments are given in is fascinating. Exodus chapter 19 is the chapter right before Exodus 20 where the Ten Commandments are given. And what does Exodus chapter 19 say? It's fascinating if you've never seen it before. God said, the Bible says, Moses went up to God up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, okay? And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and to the people of Israel. Okay, he's, he's, he's getting ready to give them all the Ten Commandments. And this is the context that the Ten Commandments is couched in, okay? Listen, you yourse- God says to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I've done to Egypt how I carried you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. (laughs) Thou shalt and thou shalt not. If you get out of line, I'm going to knock you over the head with a baseball bat. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings, and I brought you, listen, and I brought you to myself. That's a father, friends. That's a father. Those, those are, there's love in those words. There's grace in those words. There's mercy in those words. There's not, you got to live this way or you're going to be in trouble. You've seen what I've done to Egypt. How I carried you on. That's some of the most precious words in all of Scripture. How I carried you on eagle's wings and how I brought you to myself. All right, now, all right, that that now is really important. I've preached a message on that one word now before because because this is the way all of of the Bible is. God has done this for you, grace. Now, this is what the response he expects out of you. That's That's the whole Bible. God has taken the initiative. God has done this for you. God has shown you grace. Now, here's how I want you to respond. That's the whole Bible. God is loving. We respond to him in love. 
It's not just enough to sing about, oh, Jesus loves me, this I know. I've got to sing, oh, how I love Jesus. I've got to respond to that love. I've got to respond, and I can sing around all I want to, Jesus loves me, this I know. You know, I can sing that Jesus loves me all I want to, but it, it's not complete. The cycle's not complete and to say, oh, how I love Jesus. So you've seen what I've done to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, what covenant is he talking about, Mark? It's called the Mosaic Covenant, if you've ever gone to theology classes. Moses, the Mosaic Covenant that, that, that God gave Moses. Now, if you will keep, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, listen, and out of all the nations of the world, out of all the nations of the world, you will be my treasured possession. That sounds like a father to me. And if I had time, I'd go to, I'd go to Peter right now, where Peter in the New Testament says, we are now the treasured possessions. We are the kingdom of priests through Jesus Christ. You are my treasured possession. Although all the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Mean old judge, isn't he? Just a mean old judge. Squelching all your fun. Friends, they're the tender commandments from the heart of a loving father that says, child, I know what's best for you. Don't go there. Go here. What, at the end of that road, child, it's not good for you. Don't go there. And any loving father does that. And so last week we talked about the first commandment that says you shall have no other gods before me. And we don't have all these, little, these other gods, do we? But in reality, we only have one big G God, but we have a lot of little G gods, don't we, that call our names. There's a whole, we're just, we just drown in little G gods. Oh, we would never say they're the big G God, the one true God, but there's a whole lot of little G gods that call our names where we want to get our security, where we want to find our happiness, where we want to find our peace, that vies for our worship. Oh, I know we're not going to sing songs to those little G-gods, but they're going to preoccupy us. And if you weren't here last week, you need to go catch that message on the Internet about all the little Gs that are in all of our lives, and every one of us, including me, has them. And they call our name, and they beg for worship. They beg for our allegiance. You find them in your prayers. Many times what you pray about most will be the gods in your life. Now, you need to go back and listen to the message to figure that statement out. What you worry about the most, where you find your identity, where you find your security, they're little G's. And God knew all about that. And so he gives us the first commandment. And the second commandment kind of sounds like the first commandment, doesn't it? Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 6. It's the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love, can I, can I teach a little bit here? 
That word love, okay, yeah, it's love, isn't it? No, it's not love. It's the word hesed in the Hebrew language. All right, and nobody said amen, okay? Let me tell you what hesed means. Hesed is a word the Israelites had to make up to describe their God. It gets translated steadfast love many times. Sometimes it's translated mercy. Sometimes it's translated grace or forgetfulness. It's the word hesed. All the other countries around uh, Israel at that time, you can't find the word hesed. You have a whole lot of overlap in, in other Semitic languages, but you'd never find this word hesed. It's like the Israelites had to invent a word to describe their God because there was no other God like him. So that word is hesed, but showing hesed, steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me. And keep my commandments. So the old language says, said, no graven images. What's graven mean? We, I, I, who's the last time you used the word graven? Huh? You use the word in the break room very often? Graven? It means carved or sculpted. The, new transla- the NIV translation says, don't make for yourself an idol. Now that's the way worship was back then. And I've told you this before, in some of the old TNT movies on Abraham's life, Abraham goes to his father, Terah, and says, Terah, God has called me to follow him. And Terah gives the exact right answer. It's not a biblical answer, but it's the perfect answer that the writers put in. Terah said, what God are you talking about? That is the exact right answer for the day. And then it has Terah said, look, he opened his cabinet and said, look at all these gods. Which one called you? And he sees all these idols and all these statues. That was the day. That was the day. And so we look at this and says, well, I haven't, I haven't bowed down to any idol lately. I don't have any little images in my house. So this doesn't apply to me. This is like the 3,000-year-old stuff. Well, God's word is always about the heart. It's always about the heart. And while we may be too sophisticated today to make an idol out of gold and bow down to it, are there images and idols in our heart? You know, it's it's fascinating to think about that as God... This is fascinating. As God was given this commandment to Moses... They were breaking it down at the bottom of the mountain. You know your Bibles well enough? They were breaking it at the bottom of the mountain. Because Moses had gone up to get the Ten Commandments, and Moses had gone for a long time, you know, and nobody knew if he's coming back or not. So they turned to Moses' brother, Aaron. You know, you're kin to Moses, so you must be the one that needs to lead us or something. Now Moses, he's gone up. We don't know if this fellow's going to come back or not. So Aaron, why don't you make for us a God so we can bow down and worship him for bringing us out of Egypt? And so for some unearthly reason, Aaron does it. And he takes all their gold and he burns it all down. And the Bible says he built a golden calf. Exodus chapter 32. Now, I I pulled an image off of a a children's book. Now, I don't know what the golden calf looked like. It may look like that or it may not. I don't have any idea. But they built an idol made out of gold. As God was giving the commandment to Moses. And 
when Moses came down, he was, well, you remember the story? Moses came down, he was so irate, he took the tablets and he, what did he do with them? He threw them down and broke them. He had, Moses had an anger issue, I tell you, he did. <laughs> What's the big deal, Mark, about making idols? They, they were still, go back to that, go, go back to that. They were still, they were worshiping the true God, but... They were worshiping with an idol. Don't be hard on Israel. That's all they knew in Egypt. For 400 years, they had been bowing down to idols made of gold or bronze or whatever they made them out of. Don't be hard on them. That's all they knew. So it's a problem, Mark. They were worshiping the true God, but they were worshiping in the wrong way, and that's what the second commandment's about. First commandment is worship the true God and not the little G's in your life. The second commandment is says, don't worship the true God in the false way. And you make any image out of God, any image out of God, it reduces God and it devalues God because there is no image, there is no idol, there is no graven image that can fully represent who he is. It'll be less. And there's no way that you can carve anything, you can draw anything, you can paint anything, I can describe anything that fully represents God because he's bigger than what we could ever imagine. So you see this thing right here, and if this is your God, you'd have to think, wow, that's pretty cool. My God is strong like a bull, and he just runs through everything. Well, that's kind of cool to have a God like that. But what about a God that can... Sympathize with you in your weaknesses and in your temptations. Does, does, the, does the bull do that to you? Does the calf do that for you? It can give you? It can give you a part of God, but it doesn't give you the whole picture of God. We go into Catholic churches and we have a crucifix up here. And it has the dying Savior on the crucifix. And so you see the suffering Savior, which is a huge part of the heart of God, but it's not the whole God. The whole God is not that he's only the suffering Savior who gave his life for you. He is the soon-coming king riding a white horse. That's the, 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 the one, another part of God. And so even something like a crucifix and something as important as, as portraying the death of Christ do not give you the full picture of that. We've got a cross, and that's great. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's the most universal symbol of the Christian life. It's the cross. But it's, it's inadequate. Because when you look at that cross, you, you don't see the full enormity of who God can be for you. At least it's an empty cross. And you can imagine, that you can know there's no one there because he is resurrected. Our Catholic friends still have him on the cross. He ain't on a cross anymore, friend. And I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to put that down. I really don't. It's just all of us make that mistake in some ways. So why is it that God says no image? Because any image devalues him. It reduces him. It makes him smaller than who he really is. And you cannot fully, adequately ever describe God Romans chapter 11, who has understood the mind of the Lord or whoever, known, whoever has been his counsel? Now, why is this such a big deal to God? 
why is this graven image thing, what, what does he, why does he get all bent out of shape? Well, it tells you in, in Exodus 25, it says, I'm a jealous God. And we talked a little bit about this last week. And we said the jealousy is not this jealousy of a little 14-year little girl who's jealous of her boyfriend. I mean, irrational jealous and, and emotional drama and all that kind of stuff. That's what we think about but when we talk about jealousy. But friends, there can be a holy jealousy. My wife, Sue, we've been married now for... <laughs> since 1995, Okay. November 18th, 1995. And so I find text messages that Sue is texting another guy, and I say, hey, it's no big deal. Do whatever you want. You would call me an idiot. You would call me an idiot. I have every right to be jealous of her because she's mine and I'm hers. And we have promised one another for the rest of our lives. And if I'm not jealous of her, there's something really weird. Because that jealousy wants to protect. If I'm not jealous of my boys chasing after stuff that they shouldn't be chasing after, and my, if my anger doesn't burn When they are chasing after something, they don't need to be chasing after them. I'm not a good dad. There's a holy jealousy. And that's what we're talking about. The whole earth is God's, so we're his. And he has a right to us. And he's jealous of us. Whether we run after the little G gods or whether we reduce him or devalue him, misrepresent him by imagining him in our mind in some way that he's not. Hey, Mike and Becky Hancock, come up here. I haven't haven't prepped you for this, but I need y'all's help. Come on up here. All right. It only weighs like five pounds, don't worry about it. Now let's imagine Mike and Becky are not married and they're daters, okay? And they're, even though they're not married, they're engaged. Oh, don't, don't be doing that. Becky said, that's what he did when we were dating. If we weren't married, I'd do. Look, he's going to sit over here. Look at that. Remember when you used to have those bench seats in the front seat of your car, and you knew it was serious when your girl sat right there. You remember that? You all have no clue what we're talking about down here. All right. They're dating, but they are engaged, and they're going to get married in six months. And, and they, Mike has taken her out for a romantic dinner at Burger King, okay? Did Blackaby come along with us? <laughs> and right in the middle of the Whopper, Becky looks in Mike's eyes and says, you know, Mike, I can't wait till six months from now. 
I, I, I'm just so, so happy to be married to you and to, give, and to be able to give all of me to you and to be able to spend the rest of my life with you. But Mike, listen, even though we've been dating a few years, <laughs> there are some things you don't know about me. And I just want you to know everything about me before we get married. And I don't want to hold anything back. I want you to know everything about me. And Mike's response to that, are you going to eat those french fries? (laughs) (laughs) He says to Becky, Becky, I don't want to know that thing. Whatever that, those things are, I don't want to know them. I just have this perfect image of you, and I want to keep it right where it is. But, but Becky says, but Mike, for us to really be one flesh, Mike, you need, you need to know. No, 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 no. I like you just the way you are. I don't want to know those things. Now, when they come into my office three months later for premarital counseling, I'm going to tell her to leave this guy right now and do not go to the altar. Because he's an idiot. (laughs) Now, when we don't want to understand the true God, and we make an image of our preferred view of him, and leave off those other areas that we don't particularly like very much, It's like God telling us to know him in his fullness. And we respond, are you going to eat those french fries? Look to the lengths that God has gone to reveal himself to us. And we want to pick. God is not a buffet line. You can't pick and choose what you want. He's a person. And he comes with with love and he comes with righteousness. And he comes with mercy beyond belief, but he comes with anger and jealousy as well. And I can't pick this part and leave this part off. If I am, I'm breaking the second commandment. And I'm creating an image of a preferred God that I want to worship. I'm making an image for myself. Thanks, Mike and Becky. You know, we don't make those little idols. But when we think that God is um, a celestial Santa Claus that's just there to give me good gifts. Now, is God, does God want to gift us? He absolutely does want to bless us. But that's not the full picture of God. But if I only see him as a divine Santa Claus, or what about a bumper sticker you used to see? If I see him as my co-pilot... Get out of the cockpit, please. Where did that bumper sticker come from? Oh, we all need a good repairman, don't we? Every one of us here needs a good repairman. 
come fix things in our house. And when something goes wrong, we call and we fix the repairman. Some of us that God is that repairman. Something has gone wrong and I need him to fix it. And so he comes and fixes it. And then I don't see him again till something else goes wrong. And he's my, my divine Mr. Fix-It. He's a grandfather to some of us. Just a jolly old guy, you know. To tug on his beard. You know, slips us in the back door of heaven. We haven't been real good, you know, but just I'll let you in the back door. You know, when I was a kid, when I was like 10 or 11 years old, my, this is unbelievable that my parents would even let, drop me off at the University of Kentucky when I was 11 years old to go to a UK game by myself. You get arrested now if you do that kind of stuff. But they would drop me off, and I used to know I, I'd go up to what was called the crow's nest. And, and, and the, the crow's nest was where our usher was, and I would tap on that door where that usher was, and that usher would go, come on in. I know you want to see the game. Come on in. Close that door. That, some people's God is that way. I saw, I saw a documentary on AIDS, and, and there, was this, there was this guy who was dying of AIDS, and, and the person that was doing the docu- documentary said, you know, when you stand before God, what do you think God's going to say to you? And this guy that was dying of AIDS said, I think he's going to say, come on in. You did a hell of a job. A preferred image of God, an idol, not the true God, not the one who's been revealed, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but a God that we make up, a buffet line type of God. Several years ago, it's old news now, but some of you have never heard it. There was a reimagining conference in 1993 where a bunch of theologians, and I'd have to be honest to say this, female theologians by most of them, but a bunch of female theologians got together in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and they represented mainline denominations, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, and so forth. And so these female theologians got together at this reimagining conference, and they were going to reimagine God. Now, doesn't that sound enlightened? That, they are the smart people, aren't they? I wish I was as cool as them. Because they're going to reimagine God. We don't have to reimagine him. He's been revealed to us. But don't I found sophisticated and so cool and so inclusive. And we're enlightened and we're 21st century people. And let's go to the reimagining conference where these female clergy, most of them, and I, this is, I'm not making a statement. I'm just stating you the facts. You can Google, Google reimagining conference, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 1993. Most of them lesbian clergy celebrated communion with milk and honey. Isn't that a good way to reimagine God? And we don't break this commandment in 2017 or 1993 or any time in between. A few of the quotes that came from that reimagining conference. 
Female theologian Doris Williams says, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. The statement drew enthusiastic applause. Nadine Bishop, the first out lesbian minister in the American Baptist Church, said that Mary and Martha in the Bible were not actually sisters but lesbian lovers. We're just going to reimagine. We're going to make an idol out of gold. Chinese feminist, I can't pronounce her name, told the group, we cannot have one Savior. Just like Big Mac and McDonald's prepackaged and shipped all over the world. That wouldn't do. It's imperialistic. Look that word up and you'll you'll figure out what it means. She offered China's 722 gods and goddesses as an example of radical inclusivity. This is, this is, this commandment's out of date. Now, now sit tight. Virginia Mollencott said, we would understand Jesus to be our elder brother, which he is, Romans chapter 8. He is. If we're a child of God, which we are, the Bible says, through adoption into Jesus Christ, and Jesus is God's son, then we're Jesus's el- Jesus is our elder brother. Then that's a deep, deep theology, but it's right there in Romans 8. That's, so that's true. But she says, we understand Jesus to be our elder brother. The, the trailblazer, the constant companion for us who are here in time and space. But ultimately, one among many brothers and sisters, listen, in an eternally equally worthy siblinghood that Jesus is just one another one of our brothers and sisters in an eternally worthy equally worthy siblinghood google it because you can believe everything's on the internet right no uh, this was big news in the United Methodist Church in 1993 and one of the big reasons why they will split in a couple of years full ramifications from this Have you ever read J.B. Phillips' little book, Your God is Too Small? That's what we're talking about. Hey, get it on Amazon. Probably get it for a couple bucks. Probably get it for a couple bucks. If, you, if your God is a divine Santa Claus, your God is too small. I remember when we were planning a church in, in, uh, in Georgia, and uh, we were talking about reaching out. And we were talking about reaching out. And, you know, when you, when you reach out as a church, you don't reach out to Christian people. You reach out to sinners. I mean, I don't want to steal people from other churches. You reach out to sinners, man. You want these sinners in your church. That's exactly where you want them. And one mother said that she wasn't too cool about her little kids hanging, spending time with these other little kids from sinner families. Because God is her fortress. Is God a fortress? Yes. Do we hide behind those fortress and not interact with the sinners of this world and, and, the, and the, the people that need him the most? She had an image, a preferred image. Let me tell you, friends, if God is your genie who's just there for you to say, Alakazam, 
the prayer of Jabez. Oh, do you remember that? I flipped over the prayer of Jabez. And all us Christians went out and bought this little prayer Jabez book and think it was a, this is the magic formula that we're going to get all of our prayer answered. How pagan is that? And then all the other Christian booksellers started to put out these little books themselves because you sell more books when they're little like this. So the prayer of Jabez was a way that we can just, God can just be our genie. If we say these words, then God will do this just like a genie. If, if your God is a genie, you, you have an image for a God. If your God is an, if your God is an American, you have an idol. America is no more in the plan of God than Vietnam is. Red, yellow, black, and white. All are precious in his sight. If your God is white or black or brown, what color was Jesus? He probably was brown. Right? I mean, that's, this doesn't take a brain surgeon and a biblical theologian to figure that out. That doesn't mean he's brown as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Or maybe it does. I don't know. But if your God is white, you have an image for a God. If your God is a Republican, and you read my Facebook post, but if your God is a Republican or a Democrat or a member of the Green Party or any other party, you have an image for God. You've made an idol for yourself. If your God is a Nazarene, if I was in the Baptist church today, I said, if your God was a Baptist, your God is way too small. And you have made an image. If you think you're right in all of your theology and you've got God figured out, You got a pretty little God if you can figure him out, or if I can figure him out. If your family is too messed up for God to come in and do a miracle, you surely have got an image of a God. You surely have a small God. And if your God is the resurrected Jesus, but you haven't been resurrected yourself, you've got an image for a God. Because just like we sang, he's resurrected and he's resurrecting us as well. This is a big deal, friends. But, but, but let me say this. Images aren't bad. Now, hold on. Images aren't bad. The, the verse said, do not make an idol for yourself. Image, we need an image. God gave us the bread and the cup so there was something tangible for us to feel and drink that would remind us of Jesus' uh, death on the cross and his sacrifice for us. God bowed down and condescended to our humanity to give us something that we can touch and feel and even taste. 
We need an image because if we don't have an image of God, he's an abstraction to us, and I can't have a personal relationship with an abstraction. How can that abstraction walk with me and talk with me and be sitting right there in the car with me as I drive, and I can share share out my burdens with him and, and complain about Sue to him and all that kind of stuff? I can't do that to an abstraction. We need an image. And God knew that. And Colossians 1, 15 says he is the image of the invisible God. Who's Paul talking about there? Jesus. He said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What's the next passage that we have up here? 119 says, and God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. You want an image? He's given you an image. He has chosen to reveal himself in his son Jesus. This is what I'm like. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Colossians 2.9 even goes a little further. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Amen. All the full, think of that, think of that statement there. All the fullness of the deity lives in him in bodily form. And then Hebrews 1.3, which will be a new verse for some of you. Listen, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You know what God's like? He's told you what he's like. And to the lengths that God has gone to reveal himself, both in his word and in his son, for you to take that and distort it and make it into something else is a tremendous slap in the face of the Father God. He's done this for you. And the Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and that wraps it all up. We talk about that all the time. Jesus came full of grace, love, mercy, faithfulness, kindness, hesed, all of that, but also full of truth, righteousness. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Jesus said not a jot or tittle of, of of the commandments will fade away. He's a God of righteousness, and thou shalt and thou shalt not, but he's a God of mercy, grace, and love. And somehow in the wise counsel of God's own mind, those things have meshed in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. So every single Sunday, we finish our service right at the table. Because it's all wrapped up in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the positive way to keep the second commandment. Our servers are coming to the table. Father, you've stepped on my toes this week as I prepared this. And I know by your Holy Spirit, you have gone around this room and you've noticed a few people about their preferred image of you. 
and telling them that you're not a buffet line. You are who you are. So, Father, would you use these words and you, would you make us people that don't devalue you, don't reduce you by making any kind of an image, but we accept the image that you've given us in the person of Jesus Christ in whom you decided that all of your fullness would dwell in bodily form. And it's in his name that we continue to worship. Amen and amen.